This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport. A 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. For the designers working on the Bronco Sport, the challenge was to recreate a vehicle that lives up to a legend. It was such an opportunity. You know, how could you ask for something more exciting than that is to bring back an icon like Bronco. That's exterior designer Dan Kangas. He really likes his job. I probably talk about cars more than my wife would like. (laughs) The Bronco Sport offers the kinds of sophisticated features that you dream of in a modern SUV, like Ford Copilot 360 driver assist technologies. And yet, the look and feel is true to the classic and rugged Bronco heritage. It's like a tool. What's there is only what's necessary. Dan's team closely studied vintage Broncos, and they also attended serious off-road races to spend time with the most dedicated four-wheel drive owners. You're surviving in, in a dust cloud, pretty much, watching these vehicles go flying by. It's really insane. But it's getting inspired by the true race vehicles that are out there, because those are the most bare-bones, stripped-down, honest vehicles there are, right? It gives you a reality check. Okay, well, what can we take out uh, to give people what they need and not what they don't? That approach is how you get elements like the Bronco Sports one-piece front grille. It doesn't have any chrome adornment. It's a no-frills design. It's just a surface with some perforation for cooling. It can't really get much more simple than that. See the all-new Bronco Sport for yourself at Ford.com slash Bronco. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. In the far northern reaches of Alaska, out on the edge of the Arctic sea ice, it only takes an instant to go from predator to prey. For thousands of years, the Nupiaq people have been hunting bowhead whales in the Arctic Ocean using harpoons and open-top whaling boats. In 1981, they formally won the right to manage the whale population in the Arctic, which is stable or increasing. The hunt often takes weeks or even months, but the whale harvest helps feed entire communities for a year. Hunting whales can be dangerous business, though, especially today, with climate change wreaking havoc in the Arctic. The biggest danger is the sea ice. Then there are the polar bears, or Nanook, as they are called in Inupiaq. They also depend on the sea ice for hunting. And while polar bears have always been part of life in the north, With sea ice disappearing in the Arctic, their hunting grounds increasingly coincide with those of the Inupiaq. On today's episode, outside contributor Stephanie Joyce has the story of what happens when people and hungry polar bears meet. Keely Yuyan took his first of many trips to the Alaskan Arctic in 2014. He's a photographer, and his work focuses on indigenous peoples around the world especially in the Arctic. He himself is indigenous, a descendant of the Nanai people of Siberia. 
So he'd always been curious about Alaska. I went up there actually um, for a camera review test <laughs> to, to put the to put a, a camera through its paces in the far north where it's cold and the conditions are pretty extreme. But my secret uh, desire to go up there was because I knew that Inupiaq um, peoples were uh, whaling up there and um, still doing a lot of subsistence living. That's what I wanted to see and be a part of that because that's a direct connection to my own ancestry. But Keeley knew that it's not easy to get an invitation out onto the sea ice. And you can only go if you're invited. He got lucky, though. He flew into Ukyavik, which is the largest city in the Alaskan Arctic. And on the plane ride in, he met the wife of a whaling captain. She introduced him to her husband, and pretty soon, Keeley had an invitation to come back the following spring for the whale hunt. Obviously, he accepted. Um, and then got up to Okavik and waited and waited and waited and then helped with preparations, um, which includes like clear, clearing out the old ice cellars of the old meat and giving it away to the villagers. So that's part of the tradition is you give away the, any food that you have to the rest of the village to announce that you're going whaling again. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of preparation. So we were wrapping harpoon lines and repairing a skin boat and um, just a million things to do to get ready. And then finally, this is the big thing. Most of the um, early whaling season is breaking ice on the trail. So it's hard to imagine, but the sea ice is not a giant flat um, surface usually. What it is um, these days especially is it's a series of ice plates, giant ice plates that have rammed into each other. It's just like uh, plate tectonics. The, when they ram into each other, they create mountains. And so these mountains of ice rise up as much as 30, 40 feet into the air. And when we are going out to try to reach where the, um, where the ice ends and the water begins in the springtime, we have to break those mountains down into molehills. It, it needs to be a wide trail enough for snow machines and for sleds to pass by relatively quickly because there's always the, the, the main danger out there is uh, what's called an evu, which is an ice collision. So you imagine those plate tectonics when two pieces of ice slam into each other. That can happen while we're out there. And um, historically, that's killed a lot of people in the past. And so the point of the road, like building sort of a road, is that it's just faster to get off that way. Like you have yes. the opportunity to yes, that's right. make, a, make a rapid exit. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there is no mechanical, uh, like there's no like device to help us do this other than our manual labor. <laughs> so uh, basically, it's like, a, you know, it's like a kind of prison camp sort of thing. You go out there and you've got your, your ice pick. And with crew of 20 people, we're out there uh, breaking this ice down. Uh, and the ice, you know, ice seems fragile and brittle. But my God, when you've got huge boulders of ice, you've got to break down day after day. It's a lot of work. So Keeley and his crew were out there breaking down the ice. And then one day they spotted polar bear tracks in the snow. Keeley, like most of us, had never seen a polar bear in the wild before. You know, I, I was just kind of thinking to myself, the chances of uh, running into them must be really slim. <laughs> they're, they're out there in this like huge sea of ice, right? So uh, there's nothing that indicates to me that this is a place that would draw animals. And then sure enough, soon enough, we came on uh, a mother and her two cubs. But, you know, they're, they're way off in the distance. So I could see the cubs playing and it, it did feel... Very much like um, the sort of nature documentary-esque experience, except they were really, really far away. Two polar bear cubs playing. I have definitely seen that in a nature documentary. 
And I almost certainly thought, how cute. Because on TV, polar bears are fuzzy and cuddly. But being out there, it was different, despite the echoes of nature documentary. Even then, like seeing them for the first time and looking out and watching them, I knew that they weren't just warm fuzzies. <laughs> I, I, I could see it. The, the two cubs were playing with each other. Um, they were, but they were grown. They're fairly grown cubs, you know. And I could see them battling with each other with their mouths open and whacking each other with their huge paws and knocking each other over. And it, it did look pretty fierce. Like I remember thinking to myself, man, I would not want to get hit by one of those paws, even even those young ones. Yeah, the only time I've ever seen a polar bear is in a zoo. But, you know, even there, you can really sense that they are very powerful, very large animals, even when they're, you know, safely behind a moat or a, <laughs> a fence. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And, you know, I think one of the dominant kind of feelings that I, that I always have about polar bears is um, when they're walking around on the ice, you get this distinct sense that they are like they're machines wrapped in white fur, kind of. Nothing causes them to hurry hardly. Um, so they're just going and walking very slowly, steadily, heavily. Um, and at the same time, nothing is going to stop them from, from going where they're going. You know, it's a sort of feeling that like, the environment surrounding them doesn't affect them that much. <laughs> and that's not entirely true, but, but that's the feeling you get. They just, they have, they own that land. Everything else reacts to their presence rather than them reacting to everything else's presence. That includes humans. In the far north, many people have a complicated relationship to polar bears or nanook. They're respected, even venerated, but they're also feared. And for good reason. Unlike brown and black bears, polar bears will hunt humans, especially when they're starving. And while climate change hasn't affected every population of polar bears equally, in some parts of the Arctic, there are more starving bears these days. Polar bears are coming into contact with humans more as they're looking for food and they're finding settlements and finding that people are related to food, you know, like. Among uh, Canadian Inuit recently, there was an Inuit man who was walking with his daughter along the beach and um, he saw his uh, daughter was being stalked by a bear uh, coming up on her very quickly and so he ran to defend her and got between the bear and his, and his young daughter and the bear mauled him and killed him but she got away. Um, and that's, that kind of thing is just sort of increasing the, the number of encounters. So it's a, it's a really tough situation. They, as the number of incidences of contact between humans and polar bears increases, the number of like deadly encounters is going to increase too. And not just deadly for humans. Deadly for bears, too. But Keeley's first polar bear sighting, the encounter with the mom and two cubs, was not that. Keeley and the rest of his whaling crew watched them at a distance for a while and then got back to building the ice trail. And eventually, after days of work, they made it out to where the ice and water meet. When we got up there and it was a big, beautiful day, um, like a big bluebird day. Um, the sun was shining and the ice is really reflective, so everything's really bright. Um, and we get out there and really quickly set up the tent and prep the tent area. And then we go out to set up... Um, the bench for watching the whales. It's the place where you sit and it's a windbreak. So you actually chop a couple blocks of ice out 
and set one of the sleds on top to create a bench. And then we create a windbreak um, with a tarp. So we are kind of setting that up and about halfway set up. Uh, and everyone's kind of relaxing because we've been working pretty hard. You know, there's been a lot of um, trail breaking uh, for, for days and days getting out there. Uh, and so everyone is sort of relaxing, sort of working, you know, hanging out. And um, there's like kind of tools scattered all over the place, rifles scattered here and there. And generally everyone's just like taking a, taking a moment. And it was just looking really beautiful. And I just couldn't help myself. I was like, oh, well now is the time to get some landscape photographs. It's really beautiful out here, you know? And so I got a wide angle landscape lens on. I was shooting some landscape photos and then I came back to the bench and was about to change into another lens. And all of a sudden I hear, Nanook, Nanook. The Inupak who don't mince words ever, shedding like that meant there's real true danger. And I could feel it. There was like an immediate tension in the air. And that's not something I've ever felt being around any, any of my Inupak friends. So I'm looking and I'm looking and everyone's pointing the same direction. They're looking out um, over this boulder field of large ice boulders. And like everything's like the size of, uh, every boulder is like the size of a bear, right? They're, you know, about three meters wide and, um, and they're just a, a whole, field strewn full of them and I'm looking I'm looking like out on the horizon I don't see it I don't see it and you can see everyone else is looking too um, and they don't know where it is uh, and then all of a sudden I, I spot it and I realize that like I'm, I'm looking way too far out on the horizon and it's actually right there in front of us. Earlier we spoke with Ford Motor Company exterior designer Dan Kangas about his team's effort to craft the all-new Bronco Sport with a look and feel that aligns with the rugged Bronco heritage. You look back at the classic vehicle, and it's so simple. It's robust, strong. It's honest. Honesty is one of the key factors of this design process that we're going for. We, we didn't want to make an ostentatious or pretentious vehicle. For inspiration, Dan's team studied 4x4s built for off-road races. One of the things that struck me was I saw how important lighting was. There's no street lights. You're out in a desert going up a mountain. How do you know who's who? People customize their vehicle with light in such a way that makes them identifiable on the trail. Dan wanted to create a light signature for the Bronco Sport that would be unmistakable. The best way to do that was to design lights that brought to mind that classic Bronco look. So we crafted simple and bold round headlamps with a horizontal bar. The taillights, from a distance, show as a single enclosed circle of light. If it's dusty or snowy or dark or rainy, it doesn't matter. If they see the lamps, they'll know it's a Bronco. It just catches your eye. Like, for myself, I see it going down the road, I'm like, that looks really cool. Oh, wait, I worked on that. Oh, yeah, that's something that I did. See the all-new Bronco Sport for yourself at Ford.com slash Bronco. As soon as Keeley spotted the bear, his first thought was that he needed to swap out his wide-angle lens. But then he looked around at the hunters, and the seriousness of the situation set in. Now I can see over uh, off to my left uh, my friend uh, Larry Lucas 
he has got his rifle on him, and so he's got it out, but he is now searching his pockets for bullets, and it's, he doesn't have any. And I can see the kind of look on his face as he's like kind of fumbling around in his pockets looking, you know, all our parkas have like 30 pockets. So he's trying to figure out if he's got any bullets for his rifle, but it doesn't look like it. You know, meanwhile, I'm, I'm still watching the polar bear, focus on the, on the polar bear, and it's creeping along on the ground, like on its stomach, crawling towards us essentially, and it, it's pushing up off the ground, like doing a big push-up, and it's moving forward, also in slow motion. <laughs> and then my friend Makalek, who is one of the best Inupiaq hunters I know, um, he has come in from a little bit further away, and he's run up, and he has uh, grabbed, he grabs his rifle and kind of makes this spinning motion and rotates around, puts it on his shoulder, and turns and shoots all in one smooth motion. And this polar bear immediately falls to the ground. It's like halfway in the air already, and it falls to the ground and, and continues to skid forward a little bit. Everyone has backed up, and then we're, we're all waiting. It's gotten eerily quiet as everyone's paying attention, you know, but, but we're keeping, we're sort of slowly backing up and keeping our distance and watching. But it's really clear that the polar bear is not going anywhere after a little bit. And so um, the captain and uh, Makalek, they both like reach over and grab some large chunks of ice and then kind of get up uh, onto a little promontory of ice overlooking and they throw these chunks of ice at the bear um, to try to hit it and uh, see, if the, see if it's still alive, if they need to, to do anything else to it to make sure it's dead for sure. And we see it lifts his head just a little bit, like it's kind of a twitch, probably an involuntary twitch, but Makalik has got his uh, rifle aimed on it and he shoots it again and, it, and, it, and that's it. That's the end for sure. In just a few days, Keeley had gone from seeing his first polar bear in the wild to seeing one killed in front of him. But Keeley is sure that if Makalik hadn't shot the bear, someone would have died that day. When the hunters followed the bear's tracks across the ice, they realized it had come out of the water close to where Mukulik and another guy had been fixing some snow machines, a little ways away from the main group. When those two joined everyone else, it seemed like the bear had circled around the boulder field to avoid detection, and then snuck up on the group, creeping through the boulders on its stomach. The bear was hunting the hunters. One of the first things um, that we did is um, open its mouth and take a look at you know it and try to figure out some of its story. And you know, one of the it's really immediately obvious when you open the mouth that, that the, of the four canines in its mouth, two of whom are broken off um, and are really short. And and then when you look deeper, you can see that there's cavities that go um, deep into the root of the of the of the tooth, which is what caused them to break. It's not totally clear what it is that causes those cavities. Old age is one of them. That bear wasn't that old. You know, it wasn't a young bear, but it wasn't that old. So there's a very good chance that's linked to climate change because the bear was like a little bit deflated, a little bit on the skinny side, and it was probably slowly malnutrition causing disease, causing those canines to break. And, you know, because polar bears attacking a group of uh, 10 grown men, that is not something that it would do um, unless it was desperate. You know, polar bears might be king king of the sea ice, but but it knows better than to go after ten people. How did, how did it feel in that moment? You know, to see the bear there. I was really um, I was both kind of you know 
looking at it, I mean, there was more than anything. I think there was a sense of curiosity. I was looking at this, like this, this animal and I had this feeling like, oh my God, this thing is both simultaneously enormous, but also small and frail. You know, I, and I could, I could feel that, like that, that, that there was this immense sense of power there, but also that, um, that it felt so small in all of the sea ice, you know, and there's this just splotch of red coming out from, uh, you know, its fur on out through its spine and onto the ice too. And that beautiful red color was just kind of, um, it was really stark contrast to all the blue ice. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is beautiful. I felt really lucky actually to have had that experience because we didn't die. No one was hurt. Um, the bear had to be killed. That was really unfortunate, you know, but, but at the same time too, like I spent enough time around in, in native communities to know that the death of something like a polar bear isn't, um, there's like a little bit of sadness around it, but not really, you know, it's, um, culturally speaking, it's a blessing. It's a gift. It's a moment of time when something has given itself to you and you have to, now you're in that animal's debt. you now you're in that, you know, the land's debt. And so you should pay back that somehow, but it's a moment of celebration really. You know, um, and this is a one of the things that really divides Western colonial peoples and um, indigenous peoples. It's a very, very different way of looking at looking at the land and the wildlife. <laughs> Across the Arctic, people eat polar bear meat, and polar bear fur is really valuable because it's both waterproof and warm. So after learning what they could about the bear, they got ready to butcher it. It takes eight people. We like tie a rope to um, to this uh, to this nunuk and drag it through these boulders and stuff. And it takes a long time. We're probably half an hour of dragging eight of us dragging this bear till we get to a nice open spot to butcher it. So uh, you know, I'm talking to Nukluk and he says, "Okay, well, we're trying to get the we got to put this um, the meat on the sled and send back, uh, back off to the elders. Um, that's really important." And so we sent it off to, to donate it to the elders. Um, and, and the hide was incredibly heavy, unbelievable. After it had been totally skinned and there was nothing left except the, the skull inside of it, um, you know, we, it took um, two people to drag it anywhere. And we dragged it to the edge of the ice and actually dumped it into the water with a, with a, with a line attached to it to, to soak the blood out of it as quickly as possible before it would, before it would stain the hide. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but the main one is that if the hide is stained, then it's no longer camouflage. It's no longer ice camouflage. And so that, I mean, that's a process. Skinning out on a, a bear is not, uh, is no trivial yeah. task. Yeah, it was, it was a process. And, um, you know, the, the whole process of butchering and cleaning the, the hide and everything, um, getting the hide dragged over to the water, it took like probably four hours. And we were doing it probably till about three in the morning or something like that. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter at that time of year. Um, in late April, early May, it's already 24-hour daylight. It's already polar summer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how how did the rest of the whaling crew talk about what had happened afterwards? Did you talk about it? Um, yeah, we talked about it a bit. I think you know, generally speaking, Inpak are not very big on talking about emotions. And, and in fact, um, it, you know, the, the language, Inpak language is, is even um, fairly devoid of a lot of um, emotional descriptors. It's very matter of fact. It's like this, yeah. this and this happens. Did it change the tenor of the trip going forward? Like, did, was everybody a little bit more on high alert? Yes, definitely. Everyone was... Um, much more like observant and much, you know, like you know, everyone didn't let down their guards nearly as much. One of the ways that I noticed this was that like 
after that, everyone kept their rifles really close by <laughs> um, and, and made sure that they were loaded. I think that, that that polar bear just happened to catch us the one moment in time with our guards down the most out of all the time that I've spent up there. You know, there's not a lot of times when you really have your guard down um, up there because we're constantly thinking about them. But that was one of those moments because we were so overjoyed to reach the, the sea. They were so overjoyed to see the ocean and just to relax for a second in that sunshine. There are very few places on Earth where humans aren't the top of the food chain. But out on the sea ice is one of them. And it only takes letting your guard down for a second to be reminded of that. But while a lot of colonial history is the story of people destroying anything that poses a threat, Keeley's experience during the rest of the whale hunt was of a different approach, one of respect and mutual admiration. There was uh, one day when I was out butchering whales. You know, I was out helping the crews butcher, and there was an ice pad where they were dragging uh, many, many whales up at one time, uh, or, you know, over many days. Um, so the entire village's worth of all the catches were coming over from one, one ice pad because it was the only ice pad that was thick enough. Um, climate change has made the ice pads really thin. Um, so finding a, a, what's called an amwak or a, a place to haul the whales up on is becoming really, really difficult. Um, so all of the carcasses were up in this one place. And um, when I was there the, on that one single day, I counted 13 adult polar bears um, around us during the day. Um, oftentimes we were being circled by five or six at one time. You know, so it was, um, I think I felt more tense that day when the polar bears were circling us than I did on the, that day when the actual attack happened, just because uh, there's the anticipation, you know, there's the anticipation, God, what's going to go wrong? And, you know, um, very frequently, one or two of the polar bears would disappear. We, you know, they'd be there and we'd be watching them and they would clamber into some boulders, some ice blocks, you know, and then they would vanish and we'd be like, Dang it, where are they, you know? And then half an hour, I'd go by and you wouldn't see them. I'm like, oh, they're sleeping behind the boulder where they went? No, and they'd pop up 100 yards away somewhere down the beach, sometimes closer, sometimes further away. So it was always, there's always this level of kind of uh, anxiety that I don't think it was just me feeling, but everyone who was on watch, who was guarding, you know, was constantly aware. I think I had more attention than most everyone else, though, because they, they really knew. They spent so much time out there. Uh, watching and observing that they knew all the signs for what to look for and they knew the regular patterns um what the red flags were whereas i didn't so i was really really paying attention and you could always see that the polar bears were constantly especially the younger ones were, were often poking around trying to find a hole the, the whale meat is full of calories right it's it's pure fat a lot of it but it's frozen it's sat there for a couple days and uh, they don't want to digest that and use the calories um to eat that so they're poking around because they would much rather have uh, meat on the hoof, as it were. <laughs> so we, Yes, exactly. But the yeah. impact are not like, oh, hey, let's let's uh, just um, shoot our guns in the air and drive them off all the time. Instead, they generally let um, all of the polar bears feed on those uh, whale carcasses so long as they didn't get so close um, that there was going to be a danger. Especially when this one big, um, huge male Nanook um, was walking around and had this big scar on its head. You could see that it, the skin had been lifted up and it had healed. This is just like this knob on its head from battling other polar bears. Um, and it came down and you could see all of the hunters looked at it with this kind of sense of awe and respect, like, oh, look at him. 
And so they watched and they let that pullover just come right in and chew on the bones and some of the frozen maktak of the, of the whale, of the previously butchered whale. You'd, you'd hear from some people like, oh, um, we need to, to get it out of here. It's too close to us, you know? And then the, a lot of the, most of the guys would be like, no, 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 he's a survivor. He's a survivor, let him eat, let him eat. That was photographer Keely Yuyang speaking with outside contributor Stephanie Joyce. You can find Keely on Instagram. He's at Keely Yuyang. That's K-I-L-I-I-Y-U-Y-A-N. Stephanie produced this episode, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts. Louis Weeks composed the music and did our final mix. All the episodes in the Wildfile series are brought to you by the 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. Learn more at Ford.com slash Bronco.